Hey, it's Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latino USA, the podcast that takes you inside the Latino conversation. Each week, we'll take you into one story that will fascinate and often surprise you. Listen to Latino USA on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Harry Leslie Smith was just a boy growing up in Northern England when he got his first job. In the evening, I would push a beer cart with bottles of beer on, uh, which I would sell around to the poor, destitute people around who might have uh, uh, enough to buy a bottle of beer at the weekends. The wooden cart was heavy and it had big iron wheels. It was all seven-year-old Harry could do to keep it from rolling away down a hill. This was in 1930, just after the Great Global Depression tanked Britain's economy. Those few halfpennies Harry made pushing his beer cart were a lifesaver. It was all Harry's family could do to survive. At the time, more than 2.5 million Britons were out of work, including Harry's father. And although he went out day after day after day, he would come back with a shamefaced look on, on his face. My mother knew then that he hadn't found anything. Harry remembers his father taking the children to a cereal factory to beg the foreman for work. The foreman was unmoved. Food was scarce, and Harry often went to bed without dinner. And then he left for school in the morning without getting any breakfast. Uh, I, I, I remember as, as a boy uh, trudging to school. I hadn't eaten the, the night before, uh, and uh, my stomach could only think of the small glass of milk that the government had insisted that the schools furnish for indigent children. It was a truly terrible time for Britain's working class. Were it not for the country's social safety net, Harry figures his family would have fared much worse. Uh, it, it was the welfare state that saved our lives. It, it was a case of when you have nothing and you get a little, you feel that you are... Uh, in, in heaven. I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we showcase some of the most interesting conversations happening in podcast land. And maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. Harry Leslie Smith is now 94 years old. We talked to him via Skype from his home in Belleville, Ontario, Canada. The trauma of growing up destitute never left him inspired him to write five books and countless commentaries on the state of British politics and global welfare. Over the years, Harry's amassed a huge Twitter following, more than 150,000 people. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's probably the most popular nonagenarian on Twitter. And because this is the 21st century, Harry also has a podcast. It's called Harry's Last Stand. Here's a clip. 2017 was a hard year. And I fear 2018 will be just as brutal. We are slipping back towards the days of my youth. And you should be warned that if that happens, no one will survive unscathed. Harry's Last Stand is effectively a warning signal, an entreaty that we don't let Harry's past be our future. Even though the episodes are serious, they give Harry a little thrill to make. I get a kick out of every time I do one, you know. Just as I get a kick out of beating down anyone who who has some some idea about politics or anything else, 
I, I don't see eye to eye with them. I, I don't waste any time telling them so. At the moment, the clock isn't on Harry's side. So he's embarking on a project that will take him to refugee camps around the world. We'll hear more from Harry in a bit about his ambitious humanitarian project. But first, we're going to switch gears slightly and return to the U.S. Anyone living in America knows that this country's racial history is problematic at best and manifestly brutal at worst. But what is race and where did our notions of it come from? Those are some of the questions documentarian John Bewin set out to answer in the series Seeing White, part of the Seen on Radio podcast. In the coming batch of episodes, a series we call Seeing White, turning the lens around, looking straight at white America and at the notion of whiteness itself. Where did this idea of a white race come from? God? Nature? Or is it man-made? And if somebody manufactured the idea, why? For what purpose? Over 14 episodes and more than seven hours, Biwin and his partner in crime, Professor Chendrai Kumunyika, interrogate America's racial legacy and consider ways to address race now. John Biwin, host of Seeing White, welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks for having me on. So what did you think you knew about whiteness before you began this project? You know, I'd been intensely interested in race and racism for several decades and had done a lot of reporting on it. But I think what has happened in the last few years around race in the U.S. with the string of police shootings, which I believe are not new, just what's new is the videotape of them. Uh, And then, of course, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement in response to that. The drip, just one thing after another, Oscars so white, all these, you know, videos that we see of people acting in overtly racist ways in the culture that keep coming out on social media and the news. The lens was sort of being turned in the direction of white people and saying, dude, what is up with you people? Like, what, at long last, white people, what is wrong with you? Right. Here we are in the 21st century, and you're still like this? My sense was just, let's do a, a podcast series that says that directly and goes right at it, mm-hmm. you know? And then also goes back in history and says, what is this thing even? You know, what what is whiteness? What does that even mean to start with? Right. Where did it come from? Who invented it? You know, I came out of a, uh, uh, I did a uh, anti-racism workshop, the one that actually is in, that I use in the series. I went back a second time and recorded it for the series a year mm. later. But the first time I did it, I was just a participant. And this was toward the end of 2015. And I came out of that with this kind of clarity and this sense that, okay, there's this huge gap between the way the typical American and certainly the typical white American, the way we see ourselves and our history on the one hand and the reality on the other hand right and that's where i thought man if you're a journalist or a documentary maker a gap like that is you know that's rich that's rich terrain to Mm -hmm. to go to work in we know for example since the human genome project that we are what percentage genetically the same as human beings 99 point what? Nine. 99.9. 
genetically the same. There is more genetic variation in a flock of penguins than there is in the human race. There is more genetic variation within groups that have come to be called races than there is across groups that have come to be called races. Statistically likelier that I am closer to you genetically. Suzanne, who is white, points at a black man. Than I am to you. And then a white woman. Anthropologists finally say, and it is way past due, that race is anthropological nonsense. Did you have any hesitation about being a white man pursuing a documentary series about whiteness? And obviously, you know, we should note that the academic Chandrai Kumanika is sort of your, you know, smell tester to, to determine, you know, okay, like, like really, John, you know, like, is that what you thought? Or is it, he's keeping you honest in that? Yes. Well, and that was uh, inviting Chandrai to be part of it was, I was absolutely sincere in in the way I present that, you know, in the first episode, which is calling him up basically and saying, so I'm a white guy trying to look at whiteness, and I think I'm suspect as as the person doing that, you know, that I, that I need some backup here. I was conscious of that being an issue. On the other hand, I didn't think seriously, oh, I can't do this or I shouldn't do this because I'm white. Because I think you can also make a, a strong case that that white people need to need to be the ones doing this work, mm. you know, that we shouldn't just rely on people of color to help us see ourselves. James Baldwin said, "Not everything that's faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced." Yeah, and you know, so for me, it's just why is it so hard to recognize? the way that white supremacy was built into this country. I mean, it's, you know, even a cursory glance at history, it's in the law, Mm -hmm. it's in business, it's in educational canons, what you have to study, who you have to study. It's in the so-called justice system. It's just so baked in. And then on top of that, white people have fought to maintain that in so many ways through so many periods of history, including now. It's miraculous that it's even controversial to bring this up. Yeah. But but given but given that I I get why that might I think at the very end of the series, you know, you sort of look back and <laughs> I mean, Chandrai sort of says like I can't believe that some people don't know this. Like of course, you know, he's like people of color have known this forever and and how is it that sort of white people are 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 just, you know, just getting the picture now. Yeah. Um and I think that's very telling. Um, yes, exactly. He says, how is this, how is this a mystery? You know, right. I, I don't get it. How is it even a controversial statement to say that the United States is, has been a fundamentally white supremacist country from its beginnings? You know, I'm this sort of you know, liberal public radio type who's been reporting on these things for many years and it's still, there's still this sort of like, oh gosh, kind of reaction. And right. I think that he's genuinely looking at that and saying, really, dude? Right. Is this still kind of a surprise to you? Right. And uh, <laughs> and all I can say is, well, yeah, sorry. Right. I mean, that's it. And, and to try to say things like, if you're white in this country, you just get reassured over and over and over and over and over again that, you know, we're, ba- yeah, we've, we've had some issues and we've been imperfect, but... 
basically we're good and we mean well. And we're really up to something really swell here as in, in general. Um, I see myself as, as bad because I'm white. And that's not who I am. I'm a good person. And every day I, I fight the temptation of becoming jaded. I don't like this feeling. I wish I had an answer, but I don't. Well, one thing that I thought was interesting throughout the series was this idea that many white Americans have that racism was just a blemish on the American experiment. But obviously in your in your reporting and the people you talk to, it's it's not a blemish at all. It's a very adaptable institution that sort of changes as the dominant culture needs it to, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really interesting thing about this moment we're in now with Trump and the Roy Moore-Doug Jones election in Alabama, where you have a candidate who has said that America was great during the time of slavery. Right. All of this stuff is making it harder and harder to be in denial uh, and to, to sort of minimize racism as a defining force in this country. I, I don't know. I guess that the optimistic side of me and, you know, that you hope in some small way that a project like Seeing White sort of helps by saying, see, look, you know, it, hello, wake up, look, everybody. Um, we need to be having a different kind of conversation and recognizing how much, how fundamental the work is that we need to do as opposed to just, you know, finding those 3% of us who are still going to Klan rallies and, right. uh, you know, and shut them up. Right. No, it's a much, much bigger project than that. You know, I wonder now that you've done this series, what is your understanding of what it means to be white in America? Mm -hmm. You know, the country was really created by and for white people and has been set up for people who look like me to thrive and to succeed at the expense very often of of people of color and to the exclusion of people of color systematically. And so, you know, and some people will say, oh, wait, I mean, you're not excluding, black people aren't excluded. Look at uh, LeBron James, right? And, and certainly, right, the, it, the society is not so rigid now that no person of color since can succeed. But we have a rich and deep history, some of which we trace in the, in the series up to relatively recent times, and in some ways still today, of, of excluding and limiting the, the opportunities of people of color. So that I think as a white person, the first thing is to recognize that. Mm. And it doesn't mean, you know, another thing that people say is, well, I, I don't, I didn't, I'm not privileged. Right. Well, that's a, that's a longer conversation. There are ways in which I think all white people are privileged. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we won the jackpot and we got a lot of material privilege out of it. Whiteness hasn't worked all that well materially for, for a lot of white people. Mm-hmm. But that we are descended from people and we are part of this group that is privileged and advantaged by the society. So then the question is, what are we going to do about that? Mm-hmm. 
John Bewin is the host of the Seeing White series, a production of the Seen on Radio podcast from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. That's Seen on Radio, S-C-E-N-E. To find out more about the series, check out our website, biglisten.org. Now, you remember our pal Harry Leslie Smith from the top of the show? Of course you do. How could you forget that guy? Well, a couple of years ago, Harry wrote a book called Harry's Last Stand, how the world my generation built is falling down and what we can do to save it. In it, he tries to explain what the world looks like to him now through 90-something-year-old roomy eyes. And what he sees is a world repeating itself. We just don't realize that what we saw now, we will reap in the future. Now he's taken his crusade beyond the pages and into the earbuds with his podcast by the same name. Harry said the response to the book and the podcast inspired him to take on a much more ambitious project. Soon he'll be embarking on a journey to visit some of the world's worst refugee camps to sound the alarm about what's happening to people there. And he's raised more than $67,000 online to make it happen. Here he is from his podcast, Harry's Last Stand. My life is at eventide. Because I will be 95 in February. For close to 100 years, I have witnessed humanity at its best and worst. And right now, in this present age, mankind is in one of its most difficult stages. It's why I need your help today so that I can complete the last great challenge of my existence before old age consumes me. Harry's tour won't be his first experience with refugees. He served in the Royal Air Force during World War II and vividly remembers all the displaced people fleeing the Germans. They were pathetic people uh, carrying what few possessions they, they had. And there were hundreds of thousands of them streaming past our trucks. I, I thought at that time, are we our brother's keepers? If, if we aren't, we should be. The image stuck with him in part because it reminded him of his own destitution growing up. It was uh, a, a time of wonder for me because I realized that all those people were no different to me. That empathy followed Harry the rest of his life, and it's what's driving him still. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll check in with writer and podcast host Ira Madison III about his early days of pop culture fandom. You know, I made sure that my mom um, took me to the bookstore as soon as it opened in the morning on the day a new Goosebumps book would come out so that I could read it in the morning before school and already sort of like know what was going on. But first, we're going to talk about boobs with science journalist Florence Williams. Sorry, I could not laugh when I said that. <laughs> she had her breast milk tested for chemicals and the results shocked her. My breast milk came back um, positive for ingredients like jet fuel. <laughs> and pesticides and flame retardants. Okay, so you're definitely going to want to hear the rest of that. So stick around. This is NPR. Hello, Lauren and all ye big listeners. This is Mark calling from Glasgow in Scotland, land of the brave. 
I hope you can all understand my accent. I know you had to subtitle train spotting, so I'm talking very slowly for y'all. Right now, I'm nerding out to the worst writer in the world. Once upon a time, there was a little boy called Howard Hello. who loved writing stories. This is brilliant. Young Howard wrote many stories and scripts. Mr. Quackers was on his magic toilet. But then one day, he grew up and discovered alcohol and laziness. So he put his writing in the attic and forgot about it. Twenty years later, Howard found his old stories and persuaded his lifelong friend Rufus to read them. If you're looking at all the madness in the world right now and you need a laugh, check it out. Hey pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober and I legitimately have no idea what I just heard. All I know is that that was some good crack, Mark from Glasgow. Well, if you have a podcast you'd like to recommend and you have an insanely great accent too, call us up. The pod line number is 202-885-POD1. If you're going to do an audio series about breasts, you'll have to come up with about a million euphemisms for them. Science journalist Florence Williams figures she used about 20 for her show Breasts Unbound. Bazungas being the most ridiculous, obviously. Well, apart from the absurd British breast slang. Well, if you're up north, you've got to say uh, buzzers, noaks, jumbly wombats. <laughs> <laughs> I have never heard any of those. <laughs> jumbly wombats aside, don't think William's show is all boob jokes. In Breasts Unbound, Williams delves into things like the history of breast implants, the scholarly debate over the evolution of breasts, and male breast cancer. And she should know, she wrote a book called Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. Florence Williams, welcome to The Big Listen. Hi, Lauren. Great to be here. So this series was based on your book, Breasts, A Natural and Unnatural History. And I'm wondering what interested you in this particular body part. You know, you could have written about the butt or the foot. <laughs> That's my next or book. <laughs> <Yeah>. Butts. <laughs> the history. Okay. Well, I, I think like a lot of my writing projects, my interest really started with kind of a personal story and a personal question. Uh, and as a science journalist, I had heard that there were toxic industrial chemicals showing up in breast tissue, in breast milk. When I heard this, I was actually nursing my infant daughter and I thought it would be an interesting story to find out what was in my own breast milk. So I actually sent it to a lab in Germany, and I wrote about that for the New York Times Magazine. Mm. Because my breast milk came back um, positive for ingredients like jet fuel <laughs> and pesticides and Ugh. flame retardants. In fact, I hate to say it, but you also have these chemicals in oh. your body. You know, most Americans do. Our bodies, our fat absorbs industrial chemicals. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and unfortunately, it gets converted into breast milk, like so many other things that we consume and ingest. And then I also became really interested in, you know, all the cultural valence of breasts and how the way we view breasts and treat breasts really affects those health questions. Right, right. So there was a, there was a woman you interviewed named Timmy Jean, who I am completely obsessed with. I know, I love She her. was the first woman to get a silicone breast implant. She's 84 now. She still has them. <laughs> um, but what do you think led to this sort of this obsession or this sort of boom in, you know, the this, this sort of industry of like big boobs? <laughs> big boobs. Yeah. I mean, once upon a time, you know, women worked in the fields. They mostly had complaints about their breasts being too large. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they could have, they would have vastly preferred to get 
reductions, I think, for most of human history. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the 1940s happened and the 1950s happened. Uh, Hollywood, certainly starlets like Jade Mansfield, put breasts really literally mm -hmm. on the screen. Right. And I think part of that, too, is GIs returning from World War II. Um, women had their jobs in factories. And there was this kind of subversive desire to, to get women back in their homes, um, domesticate them again, domesticize them, sexualize them. And breasts were kind of this tool to do that. You know, if we could make women hypersexualized, then it was sort of society's way of saying, guess what, women, you actually don't belong in the workplace, you belong at home. It was almost this conspiracy <laughs> to hypersexualize and glamorize this body part right. and make it larger than life. And sure enough, women like Timmy Jean Lindsay at home in Texas were vulnerable to some of these messages mm -hmm. that in order to be more attractive, they needed to look more like Jane Mansfield. And she, in a way, she was kind of preyed upon by these surgeons who really needed a guinea pig. It was like they were grooming me the whole time because they were, oh, you're just going to be, you just don't know what a difference it'll make. Timmy Jean was listening, not because she disliked her breasts. She thought they were fine. Oh, yeah. I told him, I said, well, I don't care nothing about getting breast implants. I said, I'd like to have my ears fixed. That was bothering me more than my boobs did. And I said, oh, well, we can do that, too. So that's how it went down. Flatter ears, bigger boobs. She got these implants in 1962. So they've been in her body for 55 years. <laughs> and, you know, implants just are not supposed to have a shelf life, you know, that's that long. They last about five or ten years. And right. then a lot of women actually have to replace them, which is something they don't tell you necessarily the first time you get implants. Right. They harden. They leak. The rest of your body moves around, but the implant doesn't necessarily. Right. So so it was kind of fun for this episode. We got Timmy Jean together with one of the original surgeons mm -hmm. who was also still alive. And we got them together. He performed an exam of her while I was in the room. Right. And he was like, yeah, you know, these implants are hard. <laughs> your breasts have kind of moved downwards while your implants have stayed high. <laughs> it's this weird sort of double bubble effect. And, and he was like, why don't you let me take them out? And I want your implants. I want right. to put them in a museum right. for posterity. Right. And she was like, well, what does that surgery involve? Because right. it seems like a big deal. And he was like, well, yeah, we'd have to sort of scrape out where it's leaked. I mean, it's definitely a big deal. I mean, it seemed... I am not a trained medical professional, but it seemed to me that suggesting to an 84-year-old that she should be anesthetized so that they could remove these things that otherwise were not really causing her issues and that, you know, for the next, you know, however many years left she has, like, she would have perky new boobs. Like, it was just, this was a bridge too far Well, for me. and to her credit, she was like, you know, no thanks. Yeah. I think I'll just keep them for now and you can have them after I'm dead. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so so one thing uh, that you touch on in this series is, um, is basically how breasts evolved or the theories around it. And, um, and I just have to say, I find, after listening to this, I found... Evolutionary biology to be just absolutely amazing and remarkable that that all of these bodies have evolved in this particular way over millennia. It's totally fascinating. The female breast is largely made up of fatty tissue, which gives it a rounded shape, which means that it is a sexual display. That's what many of us might think. 
that human breasts were put there to entice the opposite sex. It's a popular theory, born of the academic old guard. Think Oxford University. But the new guard, a small band of mostly women, say no. Sex appeal is maybe only the secondary reason that we have them. Well, we need to feed the children. That's, that's what they're there for. They're saying breasts evolved out of a need for basic survival. The debate really matters. I don't necessarily think it's going to be resolved anytime soon, but I do think that the fitness signal makes a lot of sense and it's worth looking at. And that is, you know, that we know because of all their estrogen receptors, breasts do store fat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for most of human evolutionary history, food was a limiting factor. We needed to be able to store a lot of fat in order to even get pregnant and then in order to even be able to lactate and nurse an infant. And, you know, the breasts were just these kind of convenient places to put fat. And Mm -hmm. so maybe these breasts that we obsess over and wax over and write poetry over are really just these happy accidents of fat deposition. Right. Which, you know, it doesn't get a lot of traction because it's not as sexy as (laughs) as the Oxford School (laughs) of Breast Evolution. Right. They're just like, these are just the pockets full of fat. and They're just pockets full of fat, people. (laughs) Calm down. But they also also serve a very important purpose um, for lack keeping human life alive. I feel like, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but the fact that human females with breasts can sustain life is like bananas to me. It's bananas. It's so, and also the it's like alchemy. It of, is. It's like magic. Right. You're converting blood into milk. It's so weird. And you can do that. It's so empowering. It's so cool. Right. But, it, but, um, the fact I liked, um, I think you mentioned that um, human babies basically are little vampires. Yes, they are trying to eat their mother. Yeah. There's actually a word for that. It's um, matrophagy. <laughs> <laughs> they are eating their mothers, and their mothers are, you know, for the most part, happy to comply. But it takes a toll. It mm-hmm. takes a toll on women nutritionally. It takes a toll on them energetically. So evolution would not have come up with this system if it weren't actually incredibly, incredibly fundamental to our survival. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it turns out that, you know, after the dinosaurs disappeared from the face of the earth, it was mammals who really took over the planet. And they were able to do that because of lactation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, lactation deserves, I think, way more credit Mm -hmm. than we tend to give it Mm -hmm. for the survival of the human species. In this series, you use probably just about every euphemism for the word breast. (laughs) Uh, How many did you end up using, do you think? Just ballpark. Oh, good question. We probably use about 20. (laughs) And I I even heard ones I'd never heard of before because we went to England and they have words, jombly womblats. Never heard that (laughs) one before. Isn't that so English? It's so perfect. (laughs) How do you look at your own breasts now that you've written this book and done this series? Um, I basically want to pray before their altar. I mean, I, and, and this isn't about how they look, although I think they're fine. My, I'm a B cup, right? So there's nothing like completely, you know, knock your socks off there. But, but I am so amazed by how they work. And I have nursed two children. Yeah. And I, I did. I just, I felt like Superwoman. Yeah. You know, I loved having that link to kind of my deep mammalian past. Yeah. I loved feeling like a mammal. Um, (laughs) And to this day, I still feel like a mammal. I feel really empowered by my ability to do that. And we all have that ability. So it's amazing. Mm -hmm. 
Florence Williams is the host of Breasts Unbound from Audible Originals. To find out more about the series, hit up biglisten.org. Well, it's time for another quick break, but when we come back, we'll chat with cultural critic Ira Madison III about his show Keep It, which grew out of his internet catchphrase. It is a nice way of saying um, F off. (laughs) It's a nice way of saying uh, no thanks. That's up next. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. Hello, just dropping in to remind you about Here and Now. We cover the day's most essential news with context so you know the why and what's next. A fast-paced snapshot of the world every day. Listen to Here and Now on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is Robin in Santa Rosa. I have a new podcast I'm very excited about. It's called Buy the Book, and it's about two women who pick a different self-help book every couple of weeks and live by the letter of that self-help book for two weeks and then uh, get together in the podcast to discuss uh, the outcome. And the hosts are very funny and relatable. Oh, my God, Jolenta, that's not where I thought that was going to go at all. I wasn't expecting that either until I started talking about it. But this book, like, kind of broke me. Yeah. I was hoping for new insights and advice that would help my relationship. But instead, I was just sort of bombarded with this meandering chauvinistic to-do list. Oh, my God. Can we talk about meandering and repetitive and Mm. super hard to follow? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't an easy book to read. Buy the book. Highly recommend Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And hello to our old pal Robin from Santa Rosa, California. Honestly, she might listen to more shows than we do. Well, anyway, if you have new finds you want to share with us, give us a bell on the pod line, 202-885-POD1. We are listening. When Ira Madison III was a kid, he loved books and movies and TV. Madison's love of pop culture has served him well as an adult. As a pop culture writer for publications like The Daily Beast, BuzzFeed, and GQ, Madison has made a living dissecting pop culture and the people who make it. Now he's doing a podcast. Welcome to Keep It, a new podcast from Crooked Media. I'm your host, Ira Madison III. Each week, I'll be joined by friends of mine, writers, comedians, journalists, activists, you name it, to discuss the intersection of pop culture and politics at a time when we're all obsessing over both. Megyn Kelly hosting the Today Show, Keep It. HBO's new show about the Confederacy, Keep It. Justin Timberlake, Keep It, Locked Away, On Another Planet. Ira Madison, host of Keep It, welcome to The Big Listen. Hello, thank you for having me. What is Keep It? Keep It is a nice way of saying F off. (laughs) (laughs) It's a nice way of saying no thanks, you know? There's all sorts of, like, news coming through every day, and it started feeling insurmountable and, Mm -hmm. like, really depressing. And then sometimes you just want to, like, tweet, keep it, right? you know? One of the first ones was, like, NBC announced that Megyn Kelly was joining and she was going to be hosting Today's Show. And, you know, I just quoted the Hollywood Reporter tweet with keep it. Right. 
I, I feel like you've had some pretty amazing keep its in the past. James Corden kissing former White House press secretary Sean Spicer. No, keep it. Um, unibrows. <laughs> unibrows were also just like, no, they're not coming back. Keep it. But I have to say that my favorites are when you talk about food. <laughs> they're like food trends. <laughs> so like Brussels sprout sliders. Keep it. This is your this is your catchphrase. Although this is not your first internet catchphrase, correct? No. You are the originator of delete your account, correct? Yes, I feel like it was floating around the internet at some point before, but I sort of ran away with it on Mm -hmm. Twitter Mm -hmm. and was using it to address all the ridiculous celebrities who would um, tweet nonsense or, you know, um, (laughs) would badly try to seem woke or engaged while um, secretly trying to, like, push a brand or product on people. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And... Honestly, like, it was really fun when, like, Hillary Clinton tweeted, delete your account at Trump, and, like, my Twitter feed was just flooded with, did she get that from you, Ira? Right. And I'm like, who knows, but um, I'm going to pretend she did. Yeah. Honestly, after that year, though, you know, um, just doing the delete your account column seemed superfluous Mm -hmm. because the only monster... (laughs) on Twitter was right. our president. Right. I wonder when you were younger, were you very were you a very opinionated kid? Because obviously, you know, these these things that you're known for on social media, keep it, delete your account, you know, they're very pointed. You're you're saying like, mm no, this is not this is not for me. Yes. Um when I was um home for Christmas I found an old high school newspaper. I'd forgotten that I had a column in our (laughs) high school newspaper, which was pretty much a precursor to my Twitter feed. It was just bullet points of whatever was annoying me that month. (laughs) What were the things that annoyed you in high school? Do you remember? I feel like a lot of them were subtweets at people in high school um before subtweets existed yes um i was very into theater as a kid Mm -hmm. but every time i tried to get involved in theater in high school you know i wasn't casting anything or i wasn't um you know given like a great job on you know our stage crew Mm -hmm. and i feel like i turned to the newspaper right and i feel like that was very helpful because then, you know, I realized that I really enjoyed writing more mm-hmm. than trying to, you know, star in a musical or right, something. Right, right. When did you start taking a big interest in pop culture? Because I think obviously that's your your bread and butter now. I've always been very interested in pop culture. Um, always was the person digesting um, the latest TV shows. I still at home probably have... Um, back in my parents have VHS tapes where I used to <laughs> record television shows while I was doing after school programs, you know, like Angel or Charmed or something. <laughs> and I would label each VHS like Buffy season three, episodes eight through 12, <laughs> you know? And so I had my own sort of files of those TV shows. And yeah. I was very into movies, very into books as a kid. One of my earliest pop culture things, you know, was sort of like 
Arnold Stein's Goosebump books. Mm-hmm. You know, I made sure that my mom took me to the bookstore as soon as it opened in the morning on the day a new Goosebumps right. book would come out Aww. so that I could read it in the morning before school and already <laughs> sort of like know what was going on. Oh, that is so cute. Now, obviously, you are you're not just a guy who is clever on Twitter. You you have a, a long writing pedigree and um, and you wrote a piece recently that really resonated with me. It was about how one of the biggest tragedies in all this Weinstein, you know, sexual harassment, sexual assault stuff is is how many brilliant women's um, cinematic work we've been deprived of because they've been blacklisted like Mira Servino or Ashley Judd and others. And, and I was wondering what inspired you to write that particular piece or sort of cover the Weinstein um, issue from that angle. Um, well, that was actually came from, uh, and that's why I love social media. I was on Twitter and there was an article about how Peter Jackson said that he was told not to cast Samira Savino mm-hmm. and Ashley Judd. And I feel like I just tweeted, all right, so if you're not casting Mira Sorvino in something in 2018, like, what are you even doing? You're right. not really trying to make up for anything that Harvey did. You're just, you know, sort of talking about it and then doing nothing. Right. In a roundabout way, you know, since everyone started talking about politics so much last year, and then at the end of the year, you know, when all these revelations started coming to light about sexual misconduct and abuses of power in Hollywood, people, I feel like, have started taking pop culture a bit more seriously now. Mm -hmm. And they realize that, you know, the pop culture that we consume is often created by men who have been committing these atrocities, you mm-hmm. know? And mm-hmm. it's it's weird to think about, like, the stuff that you watch and everything that we've consumed for years. It's like, behind it, it's, you know, sort of this network of abuse. Right. An industry that has always seemed so progressive had this insidious thing going on. Right. But it's really not a surprise when you think about, like, if... The industry is so allegedly progressive, then why do we only get morsels of movies like Moonlight or Call right. Me By Your Name or right. something? You know, it's like there there would be more of these. Right, right, right. You know, it is awards season. And I wonder if you had your own awards, like the Oscars, say we call them the IRAs, who would you say would get you know, Best Actor or Best Actress awards this year, who would your top picks be? I feel like Rami Malek would get an award every year just okay. for existing. <laughs> Is that because of he his would... acting chops or because it's of his just, face? Is both. Okay. And, and his suits, honestly, <laughs> he looks great in a suit. Right, right. Honestly. Okay. I want okay. all of those suits. Okay. But um, if we're talking about this year in particular, um, definitely Tiffany Haddish would probably get my... Um, Woman of the Year. Yeah, she award. would get an award for Female just actress. being, just just like being, being. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> anytime she talks, I'm like, right. Someone film this. Right. I want to watch. Like, it in I the want theater. her to be the only guest on every late night show ever. Like, don't book yes. anybody else because they're never going to be as good as her. <laughs> <laughs> I love her, and you know, this year I really loved Timothy Chalamet mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. 
call me by your name. Those are, I feel like those are some good picks. Um, I'm, I'm going to, is there an opposite of keep it? Do you, is there a diametric of keep it? Cause I want to say that I like am into those picks. Um, how do I say that? Is there like an Iraism for, yes, I'm into this? You know, throughout the entire formation of the show, we've been trying to come up with, <laughs> you know, what is the opposite of keep it? <laughs> At some points, I feel like I was saying, I'll take it. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I just, I, I don't think there is one. So, so this interview, like, would you say keep it or no? No, this, this is a, this is a great time. <laughs> this was a great time. I, I'm just wondering if afterwards, like, <laughs> I'll like tweet like we had a great chat with you know Ira Madison the third and then like and then I tag you in it and then you just write keep it <laughs> and I wither I just like melt into a little pulp at my desk. So. Oh, I'd never do that to you. <laughs> Ira Madison the third is the host of Keep It from Crooked Media. To find out more about his show, go to biglisten.org. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode. <laughs> but before we let you go, it's time for CHARTOGRAPHY. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple podcast charts, but we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. Okay, so I've got a real treat for you this week. Hold on to your hats, because this week's 289 is a little show called Nifty Thrifty Dentists. Are you a dentist, dental hygienist, or in the dental industry looking for ways to save money in your dental practice? You're in the right place. Welcome to Nifty Thrifty Dentists. Let's just let that sink in for just a second. The Nifty Thrifty Dentist has this very sort of like hip-hop aesthetic in the beginning. Episode 22. The Double Deuce, 22. But it's like, pew, 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 you know, like, our guest today is like, welcome, Yolanda Mangrum. Dental boss lady. So the guest on the show that I listened to was actually, in fact, a dental boss lady. Let's start from the very beginning. Named Dr. Yolanda Mangrum. Hey, Yolanda. Hi. Who apparently lives in Sonoma in California and has some kind of sprawling dental business. I'm a little intimidated talking to her. She was like, I don't really want to be like a dentist with like a lot of responsibility. I just want to be a PTA mom and like fill some cavities. What happened was kids. Then somehow she became like the head of a dental empire. I don't think that I really am the PTA mom type. Also, I learned something very interesting slash troubling. Costco and Walmart do dentistry. Is that correct? And so Dr. Yolanda was saying like, in order to compete with these big guys, get a little gritty. Dr. Yolanda apparently has a convenience store where she sells like gum and health food bars. She runs it like a legitimate CEO. Anyway, the point is the business of dentistry is far more complicated than I ever could have imagined. It's a bit more. And if you want to know more about it, you can listen to Nifty Thrifty Dentist. To me, it's very impressive. And you'll get the whole scoop. I was actually quite entertained by Dr. Yolanda. So I would like totally listen to a podcast with Dr. Yolanda. Want to listen to the big listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Then we will slip right into your feed every week and you won't even know it. But won't that be fun? Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. We are a mega fun follow. Also, our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. Love notes encouraged and appreciated. 
The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario and Ponzi Rutch. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was unable to stop laughing at all the news outlets using the word on air. Oops. Special thanks to my number one guy, Hans Anderson, for helping out. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yor, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from Harry Leslie Smith, the nearly 95-year-old host of Harry's Last Stand. Soon he'll be setting off on a tour of refugee camps around the world to try to bring awareness to the crisis of displaced people, which is not exactly normal retirement fare. You know, a lot of people, when they retire, Harry, they want to play golf or sit by the sea. Why do you want to do this project now? What is driving you? I've always been driven. I, I've never been content to uh, sit around and do nothing. I, I don't want my past to, to be anyone's future. You know, I, I feel somehow uh, that maybe, maybe, even after I'm gone, that I will be remembered and uh, followed because people realize that The only thing that matters really is love and uh, the care of each other. And most of us could only wish for such a legacy. Good luck, Harry, and journey mercies. Thanks for hanging out, pals. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR.